Good day. I'm Richard B. Finnegan, a Professor Emeritus of Political Science and International Relations at Stonehill College. And uh, today is my pleasure to interview Professor Anna Hohanian uh, of the Department of Political Science and International Studies at Stonehill College and discuss her new book, Russia Abroad, Driving Regional Fracture in Post-Communist Eurasia and Beyond. Professor Ohanian has edited this book, uh, but she begins with an essay on the very uh, theoretical notion of regional fracture. And so the first question I'd like to ask is, uh, could you provide us with a basic idea of what you mean by regional fracture in geopolitics? Uh, thank you very much for that question, Richard. Uh, the regional fracture uh, theory was developed in the context of trying to understand processes of regional integration in conflict areas. Um, with Brexit right now at the forefront of global politics, European Union being as the most recognizable model of regional integration, uh, at the same time, Russia has uh, been promoting regional organizations of its own. Um, uh, uh, now what we have is a variety of regional forms. What I am trying to do with this volume is try to make distinctions as to whether all of those regional forms are comparable. Are they some regions that are more developmental um, beneficial for the states in them as opposed to others. Uh, the scholarship in international relations tends to view uh, regional integration as a force of good, and we know the benefits of fully integrated regions in producing development, in producing, in reducing or resolving uh, armed conflicts and building peace and prosperity. Uh, on the other side, we also have uh, scholarship uh, and analysis of regional security complexes when countries are tied together by their dysfunctionality, meaning that we study them as a region simply because they are threatening. To study the security of one state, you also have to study the relationship of that state to the others in that region. What I argue in this book that there's a lot of gray area in between the two, and much of the world lives in, lives in this uh, gray area between the two extremes on this continuum. So fractured regions are not unintegrated regions. Fractured regions are not the opposite of regional integration. Fractured regions actually are systems that do provide certain order in a particular geographical area. Um, and they are very distinct from fully integrated regions in regions that do not have uh, ties or are completely shattered. So in their dysfunctionality, fractured regions have three dimensions. They can be fractured in terms of how power is exercised. Uh, fractured regions are vulnerable to external powers. Uh, Russia, uh, in particular, for example, and not just Russia, United States as well has done this throughout, uh, throughout its political history. Um, 
trying to get into these regions and use political power to advance a goal. In fractured regions, uh, political power is temporary, is focused, is in the hands of elites, few elites, is not institutionalized. So regional-wide governance is very hard to develop. And to an average citizen, uh, benefits of regional integration are not visible because these regional processes are captured by the elites. Institutionally, these regions can be fractured. Um, many fractured regions, such as Central Asia, for example, have Middle East. They do have regional institutions, but these institutions are also captured uh, by uh, by the local elites. Um, in the scholarship of political science, very often these regional institutions are described as dictators' club. Um, and the value dimension Regions can be also fractured in terms of values. To what extent is there an overarching value system, whether it's political values um, in terms of democracy, the promotion and the, the push for democracy, or religious values, or past historical legacies. These are all help. Uh, the value dimension, the identities, the norms, they do help regions to gel. And to conclude the, this answer to that first question, Fractured regions at their core are a divide-and-conquer strategy. Regional fracture at its core is a divide-and-conquer strategy, which is not new in politics. It has been practiced from Roman Empire all the way to current world politics, not just by Russia, but many other countries, many other great powers. Uh, what is different about regional fracture is that this is a very sophisticated instrument. It's multi-layered. Regional organizations are created to perpetuate this. And then there is a interesting um, uh, sort of an interplay between the way local elites in some of these fractured regions can even push, pull in external greater powers into their region to consolidate their power domestically. So in a way, it really helps to explain the local and the global. How do they uh, um, interact with one another and produce certain outcomes in the process? Well, from your subtitle, we take the message that Russia is driving regional fracture. Uh, that is, it's using it as an explicit strategy to advance its own national interests at the expense of the regional systems or the states within regional mm -hmm. systems. And uh, how do they do that? Yes. So um, the, the title does have uh, that message. Uh, there are several other components to that message. So Russia does use uh, regional fracturing as a foreign policy strategy. Uh, and to clarify again, Russia is not the only power that has been using this strategy or they will use this strategy. Um, but specifically to Russia, Russia uses regional fracture um, in some cases by default and in other cases by design. In post-communist Eurasia, as well as in the Balkans, which is one of the chapters by Dimitar Bechev in the Middle East, the chapter by Mark Katz, Professor Mark Katz, um, this, uh, uh, some of these regions are already divided. So they have um, post-Soviet legacies. Uh, being having internal divisions, weak states, uh, elites that are uh, regional processes being captured by elites, democracies are not developed, so uh, very often uh, elites will uh, use the threat of war as a way to build partnerships with Russia uh, in order to crush domestic movements for democracy. So Russia already has an, uh, an infrastructural 
physical as well as an institutional uh, privilege or uh, uh, in some of these regions. So there are already divisions in Middle East, in Central Asia, in South Caucasus, uh, in the Balkans, around Ukraine. So some of these divisions are legacies of uh, Soviet Union. I would, not the one in Middle East. Actually, even in Middle East, I mean, Soviet Union has an extensive legacy uh, fracturing that region as well. Um, so in some cases, Russia uses this existing cleavages deliberately uh, in promoting regional fracturing. While if you look at um, the armed conflicts, some frozen, um, some active, from Donbass to Damascus, as we describe in the book, um, uh, Russia in all of these cases is either uh, uh, a part of a, a, peace, a, a peace process regime or its, its troops are on the ground. So Russia is involved, has inserted itself in some capacity. But in most cases, and empirical chapters provide great detail on that, these unresolved conflicts uh, become instruments for Russia to perpetuate its influence in the region. The West or any international organization that is, organizations that are involved in some of this uh, unresolved conflict treat them one by one. All of these conflicts have different peace regimes. But yet Russia is not playing a singular game. Russia is playing a regional game in the way uh, Russia, in the way the Kremlin is approaching the resolution dynamics of some of these armed conflicts, or in some cases even sending its troop, peacekeeping troops on the ground. Um, so what we're trying to do with this book is to highlight that uh, all of these conflict areas need to be viewed as a system. Um, and that at the same time, it does have a very specific call uh, to Russia as to why Russia would benefit from regional resiliency, as to how, because it's fractured regions, they're, they're a lever as well as a liability for great powers. Because these regions are fractured, as a greater power, you can use them to project your global power. All right, to elevate your strategic significance in world politics, which is what Russia has been doing. But at the same time, uh, another way out for Russia would be to promote genuinely regional resilience in some of these regions. And the West has not been very effective in building regional resilience as well. Um, having regional resilience would elevate in its peripheries would elevate Russia, make it a stronger power in world politics. So that's another message that the book articulates for uh, Russian policymakers in particular. So if, if a region is uh, fractured, uh, and that can be a lever, but it also can be a liability, uh, there's a potential for uh, Russian involvement to draw them into uh, local conflicts, right. local conflicts between elites, regional conflicts, uh, and places <laughs> that maybe they don't want to be and mm -hmm. don't want to do that. Is that true? That is true. That is true. Um, there is the, uh, the chapter on the Middle East, for example, is very explicit on that message as to how external players are pulled in by the local elites. The case uh, of Armenia is also particularly instructive. Prior to the most recent Velvet Revolution, um, Armenian elites would always use uh, the unresolved Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, relations with Turkey as existential security threats, very real threats, but they would utilize this to justify um, very one-sided, deeply asymmetrical dependence on Russia. And 
with the Velvet Revolution, what, I'm, uh, what emerges from this framework is that greater democracy, stronger civil societies contribute to regional resiliency. So with so many, with uh, over 150,000 people on the streets, it gives leverage, it gives a cover for the government to negotiate, to speak with Russia quite differently and articulate uh, different patterns of negotiation with Russia. So uh, the regional dimension is important to push back against this notion of that there is a tension between security and democracy. So Armenia's Velvet Revolution demonstrated that it's, it's a false choice that uh, actually strong security comes from uh, strong, legitimate government. The more legitimate your government is, a government is, uh, the better uh, uh, negotiation processes that government can construct. Um, and the regional dimension specifically for Armenia, specifically for South Caucasus is enormous because now in South Caucasus, there is a what I call democratic dyad with Armenia and Georgia now that have altered the balance in South Caucasus from authoritarianism to democracy. And there, there is a exciting research that demonstrates when in a region, number of democracies increase, democracy is a stronger pole that makes increases the, the, the cost of aggression as a foreign policy. It presents the culture of compromise, elevates the culture of compromise. Um, so specifically for Armenia, this is, uh, this is really an exciting time. The implications, opportunity, it really opened up new opportunities for Armenia's foreign policy. Um, but it's still unclear as to whether Armenian government can realize the regional dimension of its statecraft. Um, and uh, also would like to add that the original fracture approach to thinking about Eurasia uh, really offers a look at Russia from the peripheries. So what I argue in this book, in the, in the first chapter in particular, is that to understand Russia, we have to look at its peripheries. That Armenia, and Armenian studies in particular, can be extremely helpful in explaining Russian foreign policy that it's not much of the scholarship on Russia is centered on the capitals, whether it's the Western capitals or Kremlin or Moscow, right? But what I argue, what my co-author, the authors of the chapters argue, demonstrate is that uh, looking at Russia from the peripheries is uh, a, a methodological and a policy rationale long overdue. So looking at Russia from Armenia, from South Caucasus, is, is an important uh, way of unpacking um, there's still unfolding relationships between uh, post-Soviet, increasingly imperial Russia uh, and Armenia, which is as many uh, uh, post-Soviet republics. This is a new state, deals, issues, deals with issues of nation building, state building, while at the same time trying to navigate multipolar world politics. And the degree to – is uh, this particular strategy adopted by the, the Russians – uh, a difference in kind, or as you said earlier, is it a version of divide and conquer uh, just in applied in a new setting and in a new post-Soviet Union environment? That's a great question. Something that I haven't touched a lot in the book, in the chapter, and something I'm looking at it right now, uh, is the fact that uh, even though I do say that this 
theory, original fracture theory, this framework helps to understand continuities between contemporary Russia and the Soviet Union, and then prior to that, the Russian Empire. So there is definitely, uh, at its core, the divide and, stra- divide and conquer strategy is practiced currently by the Kremlin. It was practiced in Soviet years, and it was practiced in the Russian Empire. It was practiced in, o- in the Ottoman Empire, in the British Empire. So that's something imperial powers definitely do. What is unique and new in the contemporary applications of this regional fracture as a strategy is the institutional sophistication, meaning that uh, fractured region is practiced through uh, existing organizations, Eurasian Economic Union that is created by Russia, uh, for example, collect, uh, CSTO, uh, Collective Security Treaty Organization, the South Caucasus chapter um, written by Lawrence Browers, and then there's a chapter by, on Armenia specifically by Richard, uh, uh, Richard Giragosian, uh, makes this point uh, quite clearly that while Armenia is part of these regional organizations that Russia has created, um, it's still Russia's leverage pressure point is still bilateral. Mm-hmm. And Lawrence Boris actually argues that all of these regional organizations that Russia created trying to contain and uh, reintegrate some of the post-Soviet territories that it lost, that it lost as a result of the Soviet collapse, um, that uh, it uh, that this is simply a multilateral gloss over deeply bilateral partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's uh, and I'm citing Lawrence Morris here. And importantly, uh, Russian uh, th- this regional organizations that Russia created, they're still institutionally weak. Even there's the self Russia has is still struggling to practice self restraint, which we'll learn from American experience is an important component for hegemon to dictate its rules of the road to other states. So that's where uh, the framework of regional fracture demonstrates to Russia that practicing lever- pressure, pressuring countries, elites uh, informally, applying po- uh, power resources individually, informally, and uh, capturing institutions and simply using them bilaterally is not an effective way, neither to project Russia's influence um, and nor to produce genuinely uh, genuine de- development for these regions that could then uh, be willing to play voluntarily in, into Russians or in Russia's orbit. So if uh, before the Velvet Revolution uh, the in, in Armenia, uh, there was an effort on the part of the Armenians to uh, link up with the European Union, mm-hmm. not join, but mm-hmm. an association relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, then... To everyone's surprise, or a lot of people's surprise, they flipped quickly and joined a Russian association. Mm-hmm. Had this uh, happened after the Velvet Revolution, would th- uh, the Armenian government have more capacity to resist that Russian pressure to join the association? That's a great question. Uh, and capacity is the key word here. Indeed, in 2013, when the Armenian government pre-Velvet Revolution, pre-democratic transition, did do this U-turn after uh, negotiating with European Union to sign the Eastern Partnership Agreement for like four years or so. Um, so that was a very clear case 
a very good example as to how temporary, how uh, shallow uh, uh, the reliance of the government on the political elites by any power is. Um, and while Russia succeeded in flipping uh, the position of Armenian government in regards to switching from uh, signing the European Union agreements to joining Eurasian Economic Union. Um, so you could argue, and it's very hard to say, on the one hand, you could say the government did not have much choice with all the security rhetoric, but at the same time, the other way to look at it is that the government really needed the support of Russia to stay in power which is not the first time that a local elite in a smaller peripheral state has done to legitimize its power. Now, with the Velvet Revolution, Armenian government does have more political room to push back, to renegotiate, more capacities in doing so. Um, it still hasn't, Russia has been testing uh, the new government in smaller technical areas, and, uh, and it's still an unfolding story. So far, the government has been doing, it's still a young government, so it's very hard to, see, to evaluate how effectively this government has been doing in trying to renegotiate arrangements with Russia. But they have been, the key message that has been emerging from Nikol Pashinyan's government, even before the parliamentary this last part, not parliamentary elections, I really like that. He uh, argues that there will be no shifts, strategic shifts in Armenia's relationship with Russia, so that security arrangement was not uh, altered. Uh, but he argued that we would like to strengthen our partnership uh, with Russia, and in order to do that, our interests also need to be heard, meaning that the relationship needs to be truly turned into a partnership as opposed to a dependency, as opposed to a patron-client relationship. So it sounds like he's making an institutional call to Russia to say, look, if you do take us seriously, and not just Armenia, uh, whether it's Belarus that is in a similar dependency relationship, uh, as well as Central Asian countries less so, that it, we will add to the institutional strength of the organizations that you have created. I'm less clear as to whether Russia, uh, at least the, the rhetoric that is coming out, the speeches from the elite, from uh, various governmental officials, I don't think there has been a realization that for Russia to be a serious, uh, pl serious um, uh, champion or s center of gravity for these regional organizations, it has to follow its own rules. And when I was interviewing um, uh, analysts in Moscow about Eurasian Economic Union, this was a government-linked think tank. He went out of his way, the respondent, to say that this is just, the Eurasian Economic Union is not a Soviet Union 2.0. It's just another uh, regional organization similar to European Union. And in their official documents, European Union is cited, the structure is, uh, 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 is studied and emulated. But when it comes down to implementation from rhetoric to reality, that's where we see that these organizations, uh, Russia-created organizations, still remain weak. Are Russia-centered. Russia-centered yeah. ones, yeah. And finally, are we, uh, as we draw to a close, yeah. uh, let's take the most blatant and difficult example for the West, uh, Crimea. Yes. Uh, in this instance, this uh, fracture is to 
would you say to undermine the strength uh, of the Kiev government uh, and leave them <clears throat> in this dependency relationship mm-hmm. uh, because of a direct, concrete military threat? That's right. So the chapter on Ukraine, uh, on Ukraine is written by uh, Professor Sevalot Samokhvalov, and it's a very thoughtful chapter. What he argues uh, in that chapter is that regional fracture theory is very useful in explaining regional dynamics in Ukraine better than the Huntingtonian civilizational choice as to how Ukraine is often portrayed, that it's this country that is stuck in between East and the West, Russia and the West, and the more Western areas that are more pro-Europe and the Eastern parts are more uh, the industrial or Russia linked, the predominantly Russian population. And he quite very convincingly shows how the elites actually crisscrossed different camps based on their interests, pro forces that would be viewed as pro-West actually switched sides and did help uh, Russian government on various occasions. And that's one of the dimensions of regional fracture theory, that these linkages with external powers are transient, uh, they're shallow, they're temporary. And he demonstrates this in the case of Ukraine. But very uh, quickly, as we're drawing to a close, um, by building a conflict in whether the annexation of Crimea which uh, it did give Russia uh, geostrategic leverage uh, the, in world politics, access to seas, etc., in that part of the world. Um, but Eastern, uh, in, within Eastern Ukraine, the new unrecognized—I uh, wouldn't call them states—but the, uh, the the republics, there are still Russia linked, Russia supported. That is a strategy of building a conflict to maintain influence. Uh, over Ukraine. Russia could have, if Russia wanted, Russia could have just rolled the tanks in and do Ukraine, uh, Crimea 2.0 in eastern Ukraine. But Russia is not doing that uh, for a very specific reason, keeping Ukraine uh, with an armed conflict that makes it Ill- Ill- um, uh, impossible for Ukraine to join NATO, uh, imp- importing a conflict into NATO. NATO does not like to take states um, that have an unresolved conflict. The case is also with uh, Georgia. Um, so in that respect, that's a very shrewd game, uh, although not surprising that Kremlin has played. Um, and in, uh, in case of Ukraine, uh, this was, uh, and we were talking about this with a student earlier, uh, that this was definitely... Uh, you, I mean, the rhetoric of international law was used, uh, but in reality, in reality, obviously, it was a territorial conquest. The referendum was not done, uh, was organized quite quickly. Russian forces were there, even though they would not confess to it that they were there. Um, so in this context, uh, Ukraine did a very visible fracture has emerged, but the biggest uh, cost or biggest manifestations of regional fracture are not visible. It's that now with that, Ukraine is forced to reintegrate, to build relations with with the West at the expense of its immediate neighbors too. And I think another key policy implication that emerges from the book, but this time for smaller states like Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, is to value their immediate regional ties as a way to build bargaining alternatives with their patrons, um, 
Azerbaijan with Turkey, Georgia with the West and European Union and Armenia to Russia. These are very structural partnerships, but only if these countries, whether Central Asia or South Caucasus, they do develop better regional neighborhoods, they build their regional neighborhoods, they will be able to negotiate with these greater powers uh, in a better footing, firmer footing. Well, that is a positive note to end on. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and uh, uh, I want to thank you uh, for this interview and uh, for this very, very uh, insightful and valuable book. Thank you very much. A big thanks to you, Richard, for doing it. A big thanks to Professor Jared Green for uh, recording the interview at Stonehill College's brand new digital lab.